Genesis chapter 33. Uh, we're plowing through Genesis slowly, aren't we? We're getting there. Uh, slowly but surely, but we're going to get there to the end sometime in uh, 2020. Not even kidding. Because we're going to break that up with a few series in between, and, and that's good as well. Uh, so in, in uh, Genesis chapter 33, if we could put a title on something, and I'm very verbose, so I'm not real good with titles. Nice, snappy, quick things that help us remember. I write paragraphs and pages, not sentences, although a paragraph is composed of sentences, but for me, very long sentences. And so, anywho, Genesis 33, reconciliation in spite of Israel. Now, I'm not saying Jacob, because in chapter 32, God has changed his name. He's been transformed. He's seen the Lord face to face. God has wrestled with him and wounded him for his good that he might change him and make him what he needs to be for the mission God has given him. So in chapter 33, he is Israel now. So you're going to hear me refer to him as Israel, so don't be confused, okay? So his name is Israel. So I'm not speaking about a geopolitical country. I'm not speaking about uh, a political entity. I'm speaking about Israel, Jacob, of who he will be the father of this people of God. So the reconciliation of Israel to his brother in spite of himself. So Genesis 33, I'll read it, then we'll come make some observations and do like 67 application points. Okay, here we go. Genesis 33, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And if you're feeling some kind of way about that, you ought to, okay? Uh, and he himself went on before them. Ooh, big deal, right? Bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, or then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that I have brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus he urged him. And he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob safely came to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram. And he camped before the city 
And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path and help us to hide it deep in our heart to know the narrative of the kingdom of God that we might not sin against you by living in false narratives. But that that narrative of your kingdom would come to bear in this world through our lives as we have believed the gospel of the kingdom that made us disciples that hear and obey so that as we engage in our domains, our vocations for the sake of Jesus and the advance of his kingdom, you would, through every disciple, plant outposts of your kingdom, churches. So, Holy Spirit, would you do all that right now in this time? We trust it. Not only are you able, but you want to and you will. So by faith, we ask you pull it off. Make our attention spans fit what you want to say to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Genesis 33, frame this out for us very quickly. Don't forget, Moses is writing this as he's discipling his people as they have come out of Egyptian slavery and are preparing to wander. So he's discipling his people, and he wants them to know who God is. Who is this Lord? They've come, in, they've come out of a place where there are many so-called gods, and there are many deities and many priests and, and, and this weird religious system. And what they're learning is there's one God, there aren't many gods, and this God has a name. His name is Yahweh. And they are learning who He is and how to love Him with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. Moses is also discipling his people the implications of this truth, this law, that they are to then love each other as they love themselves. That there is a way they are to act. There is a, a way they are to act like they belong to this God. And thirdly, he wants them to be discipled to understand how to be the elect people of God who carry his mission to the world, that they have a task, not just to set up their own homestead and prosper as much as they possibly can, but what God gives them is for the purpose of advancing his mission that he promised to Abraham he would complete through them, and that is that all the families of the earth would see and know the Lord. So that's what Moses is doing for his people, and, and that's where we need to fit Genesis 33 in that framework so that we can understand what he's doing. So i got a few observations. We're going to hit them quickly, and then I really want to get to the applications, because really, the exposition of the text isn't that complicated, but there's some things that I could really get hung up in. So if I start getting hung up on one on too many rabbit trails, like throw something at me, and I'll move on to the applications, okay? Number one, overall, Genesis chapter 33 is a reminder that this God, this Jesus, is one who answers his people's prayer to deliver themselves. In this instance, he answers Israel's prayer to deliver him from Esau. In Genesis 32, 11, he prays and asks the Lord, deliver me from my brother Esau. Please, Lord, you know what I did to him. You know how I stole from him. You know how I cheated him. And he's coming. Please deliver me from my brother and we learn in Genesis 33 that God is gracious and kind to his people. And when they call out to him for his stuff and his way, it is a delight for God to answer. So we see here that God is the God who answers the prayer of his people as they are on his mission. And God is gracious to grant reconciliation to Israel and to Esau. Second observation we see here in verse 1 to 3 is that even though 
Israel goes first, verse 3. He heads out and he goes first. He's going first against 401. But what we don't need to miss is verse 1 to 2. And that is Israel's sin of polygamy leads to a favoritism that will later bring vengeance back onto him. Notice what he does here. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and Esau with his 400 men, that's 401, right? And he does the chivalrous thing and goes first. Like he's going to hang on long against 401. If Esau is bent on revenge, he's not going to make it past Esau. But he does the chivalrous thing. Good for him. He goes first. But notice what he does next. He ranks his family in order of his favorites. Notice what he does. He puts the servants first. Then he puts the bride he didn't want. And then he puts the bride he wanted and her son last. It's interesting to note. That he just met the Lord Jesus face to face. And has received a new name, been transformed. And he instantly goes back to acting like Jacob. He's Israel now. And one of the first things he does is start acting like Jacob. We'll bring some application to that in just a few moments. What we also want to see here is this action is also going to likely lead to these brothers' jealousy toward Joseph. Which we're going to pick up in chapter 37. Because what happens here is these young men see what's going on. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah. They see the 401 and poor old pops going up against 401. And guess what they're thinking? We're next. So when they see Joseph coming in chapter 37, this dreamer of dreams, yeah. We know who the favorite is. Let's get rid of him. And that's going to lead to the drama of the rest of the story where we learn how God is gracious in spite of these circumstances to preserve his people because he is a God who makes a promise and he saves his people and he keeps his word to his people. And that's really, really good news. But his sin of polygamy has consequences. Verse 3 to 11, it is right, it is appropriate that Israel make restitution to his brother it's a good thing. I just want to clarify something he says here. And it, it's, a, it's a great statement uh, that, that Israel makes when he looks at Esau and he says to him, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. He's not saying Esau's God. What he's saying is God made a promise to me. And looking at your face in terms of reconciliation is like looking into the promise of God and seeing it fulfilled. And so it is right in this moment that he humble himself and that he give to his brother in restitution for what he stole from him. But what I don't want us to miss is this beautiful foreshadowing and forerunning of the gospel work of Jesus. It's right that he humble himself like he did. But even more so that the head of the family, because you remember he stole his brother's birthright and he has become the head of the family. And he comes in this moment as the head of the family and does what the head ought not to do. His brother Esau ought to come and bow down before him because that's the head of the family. But that's not what he does. He rightly makes restitution. But the head of the family comes and he bows himself before his brother and serves him. 
Exodus 4.22 does something very important that if you miss this, you miss it in the Gospels. Exodus 4.22 says, And then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The firstborn son of God, the one who is the head of the tribe, the one who is the head of the family, comes and he humbles himself and he takes responsibility for his sin and he bows down before the one he is seeking to serve. When Jesus comes, it's no mistake that he calls himself the son of God. When we read that, we rightly need to start paying attention that Jesus is taking this terminology from the Old Testament because he's preaching from that part of the Bible. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of God, what he's saying is he is the Israel of God. He is the faithful Son of God. And what does the faithful head of the church do? He comes and he doesn't set himself up as the head, but he comes and humbles himself, Philippians 2, and he takes the form of a servant. And he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he takes on the form of a servant. And he goes to the cross bearing sin, not his, mine and yours. And he comes in order to make restitution, not for his sin, but for yours and mine. And when he does that and is nailed to the cross and is put in the grave, he pays for our sin, past, present, and future. So that when Jesus preaches from this passage, he's giving us an image of what he's coming to do. That the head of the house would come and humble himself before one who shouldn't, he shouldn't have to humble himself in front of in order to serve him appropriately. And Jesus comes and he does the same thing. He is the head of the church. He is creator. He is Lord. He is God. And he comes and he humbles himself as a servant before us in order to take our sin to the cross and die in our place for our sin. And this little gospel gem is buried right here in Genesis 33, verse 4 through 11. Let's make sure we not miss that. Yes, it's right he pay restitution. But it's even better that we see what God is doing in history, building us a framework to understand the work of Jesus in the gospel. Verse 12 to 20, I've kind of titled in my notes, Israel, bless his heart. Because pretty much from this point on, there's not much right he does in the passage. Verse 16 to 17, Israel doesn't go to Seir. Okay? And you notice in verse 12 through uh, 14, Esau wants him to come on with him. And Jacob starts giving him this runaround about the fact that he's not going to do that or that he's going to follow him. And yeah, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it with you. I mean, I'm driving these kids. My kids are kind of weak and the the flocks are weak. And man, if I drive them for one day, they're all going to die. Well, I'll I'll, I'll leave somebody here to help you. No, 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 no. That's good. If I found favor, you go on. I'll meet you down there later. Well, as you read on from the passage, did he meet him there later? No, he doesn't. Now, this is important to recognize. He doesn't go to Seir, which he should not do. He's not supposed to go back to Seir. But he deceives Esau in not going. And he also, however, doesn't go where he's supposed to go. This is important. Genesis 31, 13. Listen to this. This is how the Lord delivered him from Laban. I'm the God of Bethel. Because you remember back when he was going to his uncle? God met him and revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel. Listen to verse 13 of chapter 31. I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. 
Where did Jacob make a vow? Bethel. Where is he supposed to go back to? Bethel. So it's right that he not go to Seir. That's correct. But in deceiving his brother, because he told him he's coming, he not only partially obeys by not going to Seir, he doesn't fully obey by going to the place he made a vow to go back to. In fact, he backtracks and goes back across the Jabbok to another city. This may have been a very pragmatic move on his part. Remember, he's given a lot of his flocks to his brother to make restitution. So he's down some sheep and goats and camels. And so what does he do? He backtracks and he builds some booze, and he, which, which is a word that means he pens them up. He builds some shelter in order to regain his strength. This may have been a very pragmatic move. To distance himself from Esau, to re-strengthen what he has given away to his brother. But it's not what God told him to do. He doesn't go to Seir, which he shouldn't do. But he deceives Esau like he did before. And not going like he said he was going to do. And then in all of that, he doesn't even obey in the first place. What he should have done was said, hey, brother, let me tell you something. When I left you in a hot hurry, I met God. And his name is Yahweh. And there's only one. And he revealed himself to me. And so when I went to Laban, he told me, when I come out, go back there. You want to come with me? You want to meet him? I'd like to introduce you to him. That's what he should have said. But he didn't. Hey, I'll meet you down there in a little bit. These weak kids, we'll see you in a little bit. Okay. And then he doesn't even do go where he's supposed to go. He backtracks up the hill to regain his strength and his own power. Bless his heart. And then verse 18 to 20, he finally does return to the land. Shechem's across the Jordan. But it's not the place again he was supposed to go to, is it? Is Shechem Bethel? Negative. Right? He returns to the land, but it's still not the location he was supposed to go. Notice in this passage what's absent in his return? A party. There's no fanfare. Like, you would think he's going home, right? What happens? What happens? I remember, I remember when, when Jennifer and I came home from Fort Worth uh, one time. We were, we were out there in Fort Worth, and we were finishing up our, our graduate work. And we came home. I remember, uh, my family's not the biggest party family, but I remember we got home late one night, and my mama, God bless her, God rest her soul, she had made sausage and biscuits and had sorghum syrup on the table. And, and that might not be a party to you, but that's a dadgum hoot nanny where I'm from. And, and you're talking about a good night? Thank you, Jesus. I hadn't been eating sugar for a while, and I was buzzing off that sorghum syrup. If you ain't ever had sorghum syrup, you need to repent and believe the gospel because it's glorious stuff. And you put some of that on a sausage biscuit that's all buttered up, and, and it's almost, it brings heaven down. And we had a good time visiting. We went to see her mama because we were going to let her mama know, we're going to meet her in her classroom that we were, we were expecting a baby. right? All this good stuff going on. And, and there was a celebration. We had come home. And there was going to be a child in the family. He comes home, nothing. Why? Because there's no fanfare for half obedience. He goes to Shechem, not Bethel. As a matter of fact, if you look at Genesis 28, 19 to 22, it tells us that he, Israel, vowed to come back to this place and mark it as God's house. And he says in that passage, not only am I going to mark this place as your house, I'm going to give a tenth of everything I have to you. 
Does he go back to Bethel? No. He goes to Shechem. There's no fanfare for half obedience. In fact, this decision to go to Shechem and not Bethel is going to bite him hard. Because if you want to skip down, we're not doing this today. We'll do this in a couple of weeks. That decision to move to Shechem. And by the way, notice here what he does. He builds an altar to the Lord in Shechem. It's like, oh, this is great. This is good. Not really. Altars built on partial obedience are blasphemies. No fanfare. Fake worship. Because what's going to happen in chapter 34 is Dinah is going to be mistreated. And Levi and Simeon are going to go on a murderous genocidal spree. Half obedience never works. So, isn't it good? Just stop right here because that's kind of heavy, right? It's like, geez, man, this is supposed to be celebration. They're reconciled and he's going home. And his folly is going to lead to his daughter being mistreated and his son's going on a genocidal murder spree. What do we do with that? Number one, let's recognize God's good to sinners. We need to believe and recognize that the work Jesus has done in our place for our sin rescues us from even our own folly. Key in that, however, is our repentance, okay? And we're going to get to that in just a second. So let's set that as a banner. God's good to Israel in spite of Israel here. He still works reconciliation for him, and he's still going to preserve him, And which is what the whole tale into the book of Genesis is about, chapter 37 through the end, is how he takes that favorite, Joseph, and he's going to preserve his people through that so that Moses has a people even to disciple in the first place. Right? So, so we know God's working for the good of his people in spite of their folly. So what are some ways we can walk out of here today with some applications? Number one, and I really do have nine. There's not 67, okay? There's just nine, okay? Number one, we need to believe. Remember, we talk about there, sometimes our applications are, are, are belief-oriented. Sometimes it's not just go do these three things and like heaven falls down unless you have sausage biscuits with butter and sorghum syrup. But, but there's some things we need to believe because our belief translates to action if it's real belief, Okay? That makes sense? Biblically, belief and action go hand in hand. All right? So, number one, let's believe that God hears and answers the prayer of his people for the mission. It was right that Jacob be reconciled to Esau. It's built into the character and nature of God to reconcile, right? Because he recon- reconciles sinners to himself. Chapter 32, Jesus comes and he wrestles face to face with him to save him from himself. So let's believe that he hears and answers the prayer of his people. And if God hears and answers the prayer of his people, what might be one of the most key parts to a corporate worship service? Corporate prayer. Don't take it for granted. Corporate prayer is praying for the corporate work, not our individual challenges. Which is why Pastor Emmett and your pastors lead you through a time to pray for the corporate work of the gospel. And our walk with him, and our love for each other, and our love for our neighbor as we make disciples. Let's not look past that. Don't use it as a time to, to, to flip through your phone and look at Twitter posts and Insta chats and, and, and face instance or whatever, right? We, let, let's, let's focus on calling on the Lord and like, like Jacob did in chapter 32, verse 11. Lord, Esau's coming. Will you help me? And what did God do? He delivered him in spite of him. 
right? Let's make sure we believe he hears and answers the prayer of his people for the mission and trust him to do so, okay? All right? Number two. This one's verbose. I apologize. Believe that if you're in Christ, you are his elect. And he will get you to completion. But he does so with our active obedience through repentance. Not passively or us actively doing our own thing. Let me say that again. We need to believe that if we're in Christ, we're his people. We're his elect. And he will get us to completion. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6, right? But he does this with our active obedience through repentance. He doesn't do it passively as we sit in the corner twiddling our thumbs waiting on a beam of light to shoot down on us. And he doesn't do it through us actively doing our own thing and ignoring his thing. Does it make sense? So God working in the life of Israel worked in those active moments where he did what was right and he grew him up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus as he obeyed. This is why we talk about KDSC as the spiritual DNA of our fellowship. The gospel of the kingdom makes disciples who hear and obey in domains of society and their vocations. And from there, Jesus uses every disciple as a church planner to build his church. Okay, D, disciple, hear and obey. Why hear and obey? Because if you go back to Genesis 1 and follow it all the way to the end of Revelation, you will see instance after instance after instance where they heard and did not obey. Do not eat from the tree. Let's eat from the tree. Don't do this. They did this. David, don't do this. David did that. Saul, don't do this. Saul did that, right? Over and over. Just follow the book of Chronicles and Kings and Samuel and you will see instance after instance of hearing, not obeying. And guess what happened when they heard and obeyed? God did the supernatural. They learned something about the Lord. Their knowledge of God increased and their action and obedience increased because they heard and they obeyed. And so let us not forget That if we are in Christ, he will get us to completion. But he does it through our active participation in hearing his word and obeying what is written. He who hears these words of mine and does them is the wise person who built their house on the rock. So that when the rains and the flood come, the house can't be knocked down because it's founded on the rock. You tracking? Right? So let's believe that God will get us to completion, but he does it. Through our active participation in hearing and obeying. Third, let's beware. 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 In Christ, we're unique creatures. We have this really weird state we're in where we have a new heart. We have a new set of desires. But that new heart And that new set of desires are in constant conflict with a stained nature of sin. And that sin likes to hit back. Luther said it like this, my flesh is wont to grumble dreadfully. Modern day English, my flesh yaks at me all day. All day long, nonstop. So that Romans 7, 15 and verses following, 
It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible when I'm particularly disobedient and I don't follow and obey the Lord like I'm supposed to and I feel this weight of, oh, oh you're a terrible human. Oh. I go to Romans 7:15 and read this beautiful passage that reminds me even the Apostle Paul fought hard and lost many battles. The things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do so easy. And I find this war at work within me. Who's going to rescue me from this body of flesh? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. So that therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Right? So you need to recognize if you're in Christ this morning, you're a unique bird sitting in that chair this morning. You haven't arrived. You own a journey. And there are lots of stumbling blocks on the journey. And lest you think you have arrived, be wary lest you fall down on your pretty little face. So recognize we're unique creatures so that Romans 8.13 is true. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So these unique creatures, we're, we're in conflict, even with ourselves most of the time. Which, why, which is one of the reasons it makes it so hard as we're fighting outside these walls to bring the good news of the kingdom to bear in our city, right? It's because not only am I fighting the, the powers that be in the heavenlies outside of here, I'm fighting my own nature of sin. It's a war. So beware, right? You know, beware. That's why there are signs. I love signs. Warning signs are good, aren't they? Because they keep me out of trouble. It says, beware, man-eating beast. And if you go past the sign and you get eaten, well, I mean, if you decide to live with grizzly bears, not my problem when he eats you. There's enough, na- there's enough information out there to let you know, beware, right? Warnings are good, so let's beware. We're unique creatures. And this is a fight that we're engaged in. It's clear that old Israel was fighting hard, right? He, he saw Jesus face to face. And turned right around and ranked his kids up in order so that hopefully Joseph would make it. I mean, just look how dumb that is. It's 401 versus some sheep, goats, children, and women. And again, he's chivalrous. He goes first. He's going down, hoss. He's going to lose and lose hard. But just in case they get tired and let Joseph live, this ain't good. But Simeon, Levi, and these other cats are like, negative, Ghost Rider, this is uncool. And so we got to recognize that he wrestled hard too, and we're no different. It's easy to look back and we read the Old Testament. Like, man, if I lived back then, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, you would. You've done the same thing because we do it every day. We talk trash. Like, I wouldn't worship Baal. Well, how many Baals you got in your life right now? It's just not named Baal. Right? It's called money, car, house, boat, status. Cultural perceptions of what I ought to be, Miss Georgia. Died. Well, hey, Miss Georgia, you need to. We need to talk. If you got that, we need to. We need to talk, right? So beware, we're unique creatures that that are battling, right? Jacob battled. God's good in spite of it. Number four, it's better to obey with great cost than to disobey to gain a practical advantage. We're I'm going to do a whole worldview lesson here, but we're post-enlightenment pragmatists. And some of you are like, no clue, right? In, in, in a world of reason and in, in, in a world of logic that is produced by what Nietzsche called the death of God, that we don't need divine stuff now to explain the world because we've got our own reason, we've got exploration and science in and of itself. We breathe the dying air of that worldview. And therefore, we have a tendency to think in terms of pragmatics 
over against supernatural things. And we'll be first to dismiss the supernatural in favor of the numbers. There's one problem with that. This. Never in this book does God count the numbers first. As a matter of fact, David was feeling his oats one day after his kingdom was established and sent Joab out to count the people. And Joab goes, no, my Lord, this is not a good idea. And David goes, I'm your boss, do what I tell you. No, I'm paraphrasing, that's not what he says. But basically, and so what does Joab do? He goes and they number the people. And instantly, David's heart struck him. And the reason is because David found his security in numbers, not in the Lord. And the Lord said, David, he sent the prophet to him, choose three. Choose three because you have done evil. See, it's better to obey with great cost than to disobey to gain a practical advantage. See, old Israel thought, well, let me just backtrack over here. This is a good piece of land up in Succoth. And what I can do is build some pens and regain my strength before we get over into where we're really getting in, in, into the weeds a little bit. So let me just kind of build myself up. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Sounds like a lot of decisions I make. But it would have been better for him to keep his vow and obey the Lord with less than it would be to disobey to gain some manner of practical advantage. Because chapter 34 is coming, y'all, and it's ugly. It's ugly. Number five, partial obedience isn't obedience. Every parent in the room is, amen, praise God. Preach on. Children, you listening? Right? We're all... Absolutely. Partial obedience is not obedience, jolly boys. Partial obedience is not obedience. Altars built to the Lord on monuments of incomplete obedience end up smelling bad to outsiders who experience the consequence of our sin. You say this a lot, sin is atmospheric, it's communal, it's never isolated to the self. It's one of the great deceptions of sin. Well, nobody knows, it's going to affect me. That's untrue. Sin affects everybody. And in this instance, it's not just going to affect the tribe, because chapter 37 is coming, where the jealous brothers are like, yeah, let's see what you did, pops. Let's see what you think about this boy with his coat of many colors now. It's going to affect that, but it's also going to affect immediately Dinah. And this little altar he built here in Shechem. All the people surrounding this people that supposedly belong to the Lord are going to see El Elohe Israel. Oh, didn't they slaughter an entire tribe of people? Well, that's good. Right? Altars built to the Lord on monuments of incomplete obedience end up smelling bad to outsiders who experience the consequence of our sin. Meaning it matters that we obey not just for inside these walls, the end, but for our out testimony that this is a people that smell good. They love right. They care right. Didn't Jesus even say he taught us? In the Gospel of John, that how you love is a gospel witness to those outside. It's better to fully obey at all times. Number six, the payout, the payoff, the fruit of sin is always death. Paul said this in the book of Romans, the wages, the payout of sin is death. It never works out. 
to sin. Sin never works in my favor. Is it working in your favor? Anybody got a testimony? I used to talk about going to old school. You want to stand up and testify how sin blessed you? Right? No, because ain't none of us in this room who follow Jesus go, you know, that worked out for my good when I rebelled against the Lord. That was really a good move. Because it, it never works out. The consequence is always death of some kind, whether it be the death of the atmosphere in this room, whether it be the death of a relationship. Let's be frank. Can I be transparent for a moment? The truth of the matter is, you may say stuff, but the truth of the matter is, it always comes home. And, and I'm kind of a hard individual, so I can handle some stuff. But the truth of the matter is, when, when people speak evil of myself, it always affects the atmosphere in the room, and I feel it. Because it ends up coming back to me, and I know, and I know who said it. Uh-oh, help me, Jesus. Right? And those things end up hindering the atmosphere in the room. To obey the Lord and love each other right. To know the Lord. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself is the summary of the entire law. And it's the ethic of the kingdom of God. That Jesus would say, not only do we love, but we love our enemies. We love the people that the world hates. When that ethic of love happens on the inside of fellowships... You can't stop that mighty moving train. That's a train that can't be stomped out. But a fellowship that lives in partial obedience, that lives in talking behind people's backs and speaking evil of other people and a failure to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that kills. The wages of sin is death. And again, it might not be my instant passing from this earth, but it kills the atmosphere in the room. It kills the ability to have small group together. Because it's hard to sit in a group with somebody when you know what they did. It's hard to be in fellowship with somebody when they smile at you on the front. But you know there's et brute in the back. Et tu brute? Right? Right? You know it. Right? And so what we've got to do is recognize full obedience to Jesus is the key to life. It's key. Hear and obey So let's not build altars of partial obedience. That smells bad to people who we want to introduce Jesus to. And and, and you know what? The explanation that we're sinners is usually not heard at that point. Right? There's a great book, a sociological book, that talks about the effects of not doing what we say in the culture at large that I've got on my bookshelf. And this is written by a a non-Christian sociologist who's studying Christian culture. And so this is waiting to be read. It's going to be painful. So I'm just kind of like, mm, I need to be in the right frame of mind before I start that one. I've got to get my head right. Because the truth of the matter is the rest of the world recognizes when we don't live what we say. Number seven, whatever we sow, we will reap. God wired his world on the sowing and reaping principle. It's just wired that way. It's the way he wired us, the way he wired the universe. That whatever we invest, we get back. If we sow sin, we get death. We sow life, we get life. Number eight, the correct posture for the follower of Jesus Christ is humility. We get that life example from Israel. It's one of the things he did get right here was he rightly humbled himself. 
And you know, just side note, you know why I think the Lord worked that out so good for us? Because there was that gospel picture there that he was working out. That the Son of God would come and act like that too. Israel, my son, would come and act like that. And so even God wouldn't let him mess that one up. And by the way, there are things that will happen in your life that he will bring to you that he also won't let you mess up too. This is one of the good news pieces of the gospel that when we do his work in his way, it always succeeds. His word will not return to him void. This is why when we obey him and do gospel type work, we might not see the fruit off of it today or tomorrow or even in our lifetime, but the promise is it never returns fruitless. There are some things God just won't let us mess up. But the correct posture, and this is one of them, is always humility. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. James 4.6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility and obeying God in humility always results in God doing this supernatural work of the gospel and us receiving the blessing of obedience. And finally, real humility Real humility, gospel humility, Jacob slash Israel humility, doing what's right in this passage is an act of worship as we hear and obey and imitate the Lord Jesus. Real humility is an imitation of the king of the universe who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So as we come into fellowship with one another in Christ, we do so in humility, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it in and of itself is an act of worship. So that we come to the worship time of singing songs. We're not singing into the air monuments built on partial obedience. Because sometimes when we sing stuff we haven't done or don't do or don't intend to do, it's building a monument on partial obedience. But we come humbly in obedience to the Lord and we hear and obey and we come into this room and we sing those songs. These glorious promises that God sits enthroned on the praises of his people are a reality. Supernatural work happens. He gives more grace. He encourages. He strengthens. He fires up. He speaks. He does all manner of good stuff to lead us along in his good purpose so that that act of worship and imitation of the Lord Jesus results in life in the body of Christ. And that brings us full circle to Moses' intention. Is in those things we learn who God is. We learn to imitate his example. We learn to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we learn to love each other the way he loves us. And we work that out outside these walls in our vocations, in our domains, to make disciples and plant churches. So Three Rivers Church, I want to encourage you. Let's follow the example of the Lord Jesus as he worked it out even in the life of Israel. Let's learn from the negative. Don't do that and imitate the positive. Do that. And let's sing to the Lord in worship. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, we ask that you help us to do what is written in your word. That it would be a lamp for our feet and light for our path and we would hide it deep in our heart that we would not sin against you. Lord, I pray that you take um, take this word, Genesis 33, And work all manner of good in us today by showing us what not to do and what to do. Please make that happen. Holy Spirit, as I started asking you to pull that off, I'm asking you to to even bring it to completion now. That there will be clear understanding that you will speak to each heart. As we can't address every issue of every heart, but you can. 
So I pray you'd take your word and I pray that you would massage it deep down into our soul and speak and apply it where it needs to be applied. And I, I ask that you would make it effective and fruitful, that there would be fruit off of it even now. Lord, I pray that you would bring about reconciliation. I pray that you would bring about peace, joy, love, mission. That you'd bring all those things to bear, even in this moment. And Lord, we pray that we ask that you would make the atmosphere one of freedom. Because this you have purchased for us at the cross. And that we would live in that and delight in that and experience a little bit of it right now. So Lord, would you pull that off right now? And as you prepare to stand and sing, I want to encourage you to hear the Lord and obey Him. This is time to sing to the Lord, but it's also time to hear and obey. And if He is explicit with you on an action you need to take, obey Him. And build a monument that is fragrant and beautiful, not just in this room, but outside of this room.